Maybe. This is heresy central, isn't it, man? I, I, wrote, I wrote down five, or noted five at least, that are being addressed. I was like, geez, man. Welcome to another edition of the Good Confessions podcast, uh, where three ministers join together and discuss the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm Jonathan Cruz, pastor of Community Presbyterian Church, joined with my friends Andrew Miller and Shane Bennett, um, serving respectively in Virginia and also in Michigan. Guys, good to be with you. Great to be with you, Jonathan. Same, same, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to see your smiling face. You guys are just so kind. Um, we have some exciting stuff to talk about in this episode. It doesn't get much better than this. We're talking of, of Christ the Mediator. So this is chapter eight. And Andrew, you're going to kind of guide us through this. Uh, and uh, be careful. Here be monsters, right? Because we're, we might get into at least in section two and, and following some, some uh, tricky stuff with some Christological heresies. So That's a pre- prescient warning, Jonathan. You're right. Yeah. Uh, this is a wonderful section that exposes many ways of going wrong. Uh, So let me read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter eight, section one. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people, to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So this is uh, beginning, you know, before the beginning, in the eternal purpose of God. And this section touches on that in uh, a couple ways. You know, we've already talked about the covenant of redemption, which we said was a covenant uh, in eternity between the persons of the Godhead uh, to elect Christ as mediator, as, as our federal head, as the representative, and, and as this is getting at a mediator. Um, how, how does that tie into this section, do you think? Uh, and it, it ties in in terms of time, or that is <laughs> being outside of time. This is about um, who... Jesus is for his people, which was determined as part of God's eternal purpose. Um, so I, I think it's actually interesting that it, it, the confession puts it like this, that he chose God, the father chose and ordained the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son to be the mediator, as opposed to saying that, that um, he chose and ordained his son to become flesh as the Lord Jesus to be the mediator between God and man. That, that's just interesting that it, it starts with Jesus, or I, let me rephrase, it starts with the son of God as we know him. We know him now as Jesus, mm-hmm. as God, God and man in two distinct natures, but one person forever. And then it gets behind that and says, but how did Jesus become Jesus? It was the eternally begotten son of God who took on that role as mediator. Um, and so that was part of that plan of redemption or that, um, um, Pactum Salutis, the, the covenant of redemption, that, that the son would come to be this particular figure for humanity, that mediator. 
that was that was not happenstance. That wasn't that God looked out and saw, hey, there's this guy in Nazareth who's doing a really good job. So I guess actually we're already getting to heresy. <laughs> so I'm going to appoint him to be my son. It's the opposite, right? Here's my son. I appoint him to be this person for, for his people. Um, so what would that be? Arianism? Refuting Arianism? The idea of, or no, no, not that, adoptionism, right? Right. Yeah, adoptionism. This idea that, that there is this individual and God says, you're so great. I'm going to make you <laughs> my you know, uh, uh, in in the nature of God, and you can be my son. That, that's not how it works. And that that was something that, um, historically speaking, we, you know, the Socinians held to, and the Unitarians held to that uh, that Christ was there before, or was not existent before uh, Mary birthed him, um, or or the Arians who said that uh, Christ was merely a creature. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words. And that Christ adopt, or was adopted by the Father. In other words, uh, these particular heresies take on many different uh, forms and faces, uh, a lot of which were uh, addressed by the early church and are being addressed in our confession here because uh, there's nothing new under the sun. The same old heresies keep creeping up into the church and, and coming out. Uh, they just might have a different name or a different face today. Um, yeah. One of the things about this particular section that I most appreciate, you know, it is called Christ the Mediator, and I, I think that is the central focus of it, that um, it, it builds into this reality that we need a mediator. Uh, you know, before the fall, whenever God had created this world, uh, he created man to be in perfect communion with him. We see Adam walking with God in the garden. Uh, they were had perfect fellowship. Uh, and yet we fell into sin, and therefore now suddenly you need uh, a mediator, which is basically a go-between. You have two parties uh, that need to be reconciled together, and the mediator does that work of reconciliation, which is what Christ does. And then it kind of fleshes it out for us, what what is necessary for him to reconcile us to God, to to bring us back to God. Well, he needs to be a perfect prophet and a perfect priest and a perfect king, uh, all of which I think the shorter catechism unfolds very well around, I think it's question 25, uh, right in that section there um, for you, what that means and, and how he fulfills each of those. Um, but just, just this picture that uh, uh, reconciliation is central to the actual work of Christ when he comes from eternity and enters into human history. That's great, Shane. And uh, you uh, anticipated my next question, which was, what is a mediator? Why do we need one? Um, Which is great. And this not only says that Christ is our mediator between God and man, and we understand mediation from uh, lawsuits, right? Uh, But then it gives a number of titles uh, here for Christ, our mediator. Jonathan, do you mind bringing out the significance of some of these titles it gives for Christ, prophet, priest, and king? the head and savior of his church and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Well, prophet, priest, and king are easy or are um, beneficial to take together um, as kind of the summation of, of what it means for him to be the Messiah. The Messiah is Hebrew for um, anointed one. And there were three offices in the Israelite economy that were uh, anointed offices, the prophets, the priests, and the Kings. These were all messiahs, lowercase M messiahs. Um, and in some way mediated for the people. Um, 
the, the prophets mediated God's word to the people. The priests uh, mediated between the people and God concerning their sin. The king was the one who was to especially mediate God's law and how it was applied to the civic life of, of the people and to protect them uh, from their enemies in accordance with God's will and word. And so um, these were all ways in which people could understand um, or let me rephrase that. These were all ways in which people longed for the coming of Christ. They wanted somebody who could speak to them, who could teach them, who could intercede for them, who would lead them and uh, guide them and rule them. And so uh, when, you know, you open up John's gospel and um, the disciples, uh, I think it's Andrew who says, you know, surely this is the Messiah. This is, this is the Christ, which is, you know, uh, Greek for Messiah. Mm -hmm. Um, they're talking about this, that this is the one who is going to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. So um, Jesus perfectly fulfills those Old Testament roles, um, which were, all, were done by all different people um, in different generations. It's all then culminates in this one individual, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. And, you know, he's a successful mediator here because at the end of this section, it says, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed called justified sanctified and glorified so it's using that terminology that the scriptures often use in places like romans 8 uh the puritans called the golden chain you know that that mm -hmm. god does these different things in our in our life uh in time by the holy spirit applying what christ the mediator has purchased and accomplished and so uh, the ending is is meditating on the fact that uh, those whom Christ is mediator for are actually redeemed and called and justified. There, there's no one in hell uh, that has Christ as the mediator who's not, <laughs> uh, you know, you're not in hell if you have Christ as your mediator. Right. You, you're redeemed, called, justified, sanctified. I, I like how you say he's a, the successful mediator, the successful Messiah. Right. I think that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Just the, the reality that when Christ came as a mediator, if his role is to bring reconciliation between God and man, well, he has accomplished it. Um, you think of, or at least I think of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where it tells us, it says uh, in verse 14, Christ uh, leads us in triumphal procession. And what he means by that, it, it, in in Roman times, whenever uh, the Romans would go out and conquer a new people. When they returned home, there would be a parade where the, the victors would march first and all those who had been captured, who had been subdued, marched behind them in his train uh, or in the victor's train, if you will. Uh, that's that idea. That's the image of what Christ has done for his people. Something that, um, you know, uh, is articulated here in the fact that a people has been given to Christ, they he has been victorious as a mediator, and he has accomplished the task set before him. And I guess you could say the reward for doing so is a people that uh, uh, he is returning home with in his in his train or in his vanguard. Very good, Shane. You know that made me think of Ephesians one, Ephesians two, right? He is our peace. Uh, you know, Ephesians one says he's predestined to be our mediator. We're predestined in him. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you also made me think, and this whole section reminds me of Philippians 2, uh, mm -hmm. which sets out, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, you know, be like Christ. And it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And that segues us into the next section, doesn't it? Because Philippians two is saying that this is the second person of the Trinity, uh, the son of God who took on flesh, took on human nature. And that's what uh, the second section of chapter eight gets at. Let me read it for us. It says, the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only meteor between God and man. Hmm. So, uh, you know, Jonathan, you want to bring out why this is, why is this necessary? What, what do we need this for? Why is it going back to the Trinity hmm. and talking about the person of Christ this way? Um. Yeah, I mean, without it, we're lost. Uh, if Jesus was just a, a really good man who died on the cross, then that's that's a great dis- display of love, but it doesn't get me out of hell or into heaven. Um, it's the fact that, and, and the catechism goes into this in more detail. Uh, why is it requisite that that he became that the mediator was man? Why is it requisite that he's God? Um, but the idea here, though, is is bring and bring us back to the Trinity. That just because um, Jesus looked like us and suffered like us um, doesn't mean that he's entirely like us, nor does it mean that he's less than the father. It says here that he's of one substance and equal with the father. But in that, that role, it's Philippians two, he did past tense uh, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him a human nature um, and become like us so that he could represent us. He could substitute for us, but because he's united for all eternity to that divine nature, um, his sacrifice is perfect and it's efficacious for a multitude of the elect. Not just, it's not just a one-to-one correlation. He can stand in for, for all of his people. So that, that just begins to at least scratch the surface of the importance of getting back to the uh, doctrine of the Trinity when we're talking about Christ, the mediator. Well, it's, it gets back, I think, uh, Jonathan's getting us on the right track here. And it gets back to what you said earlier, uh, Andrew, about um, a mediator who actually accomplishes, um, you know, when, when Adam sinned against God and when that communion was broken with him, God made a promise. And that promise said that, uh, your, basically your seed will be, uh, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. So he makes a promise and says, man will reconcile, uh, us, us together again, um, which means that right then and there, he is promising that the mediator will come in, you know, will be a person. It will be a human man. But you also have this problem of our sinful flesh. Uh, how do we deal with that? Well, and again, 
it cuts back to what uh, Christ does in his uh, being perf- perfect, being without sin as a member of the Godhead. And really, if you think about it, there's it's an impossible setup. In other words, uh, the only way that salvation could be accomplished through the person of a man is if the son of God comes and takes on human flesh in this particular way, because otherwise man is marred by his sin. Uh, even before he is born uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. And you have this problem that we can't undo. We can't uh, get rid of and can't possibly become the mediator for ourselves. Uh, And so it it becomes necessary for God to come uh, and rescue us through Christ. Yeah, this, this is this kind of stuff you could do Christmas sermons on, right? Um, why is God man for Deus Homo? And, uh, you know, this is also the kind of stuff that, you know, those preparing for ordination or licensure exams have to really study hard, you know, to learn these terms that theologians use, consubstantial, right, of one substance. That, and you have to learn those old terms that were debated in the days of Arianism, which we've already mentioned, uh, you know, is is it? Homoousius or homoousius, you know, of like substance, away, or of the same substance, homoousius. And this is saying he's the, the son of God uh, in, in flesh, Jesus Christ, is of the same substance. And it gets at the union of these two natures mm. here, that he has two natures, one person of Christ. Um, how does it? You know, we call this the hypostatic union. Um, and here in the confession, it, it says the two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the godhood and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Mm. Um, so this is what we get at when, you know, in our church, uh, basically every so often we'll confess together the Athanasian Creed. And it says, Christ is fully God and fully man. And, and that seems to be reflected here in this sense. We're not saying that he's um, 100% one thing and 100% another thing or 50% another thing. We're just saying he's, he is a complete person, a, a complete human being and, and completely God at the same time. Maybe the math doesn't add up, but there, there are mysteries here. Right. I think we do want to say that he is 100% God and 100% man, right? We do want to say that. <laughs> it's that, but you're right. The math doesn't add up. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I, the key here in Athanasian Creed really reflects it well. The key is just that in becoming man, he didn't become less God, or in being um, uh, fully fully God, he isn't somehow less man. Like that, the there was exactly. um, a, a conversion to the, his human nature to make it um, fit with the divine nature um he's the man that we were meant to always be he's fully human in the way that we were always meant to be um and he's that forever what if you look at the the um tenses here it starts out by saying uh that the son of god the second person in the trinity being very internal god of one substance equal as the father did in the past take upon himself man's nature and then you skip to the end which person this person is in the present tense very god and very man he still like he did this in the past for our redemption and he continues to be god and man for our salvation to, until 
I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's no until for always, for all time, he will be this, but it's for the sake of, of our being kept in grace, you know, continually pleading for us as the God man, um, interceding for us. So it wasn't just something that he took on for a few, you know, well, I could do this for a few years. It's, he committed himself to us in an everlasting manner. And, and that's very humanistic, right? Isn't, isn't that amazing that God would take on flesh in, in human flesh? I think C.S. Lewis talked about this in the Space Trilogy and other places. But this is what honor uh, to human beings. Right. right. Um, it humanity. brings a dignity to it, right? What is man? Shane, I know you had, uh, you had a list of some of the heresies that uh, <laughs> this debunks with these, uh, you know, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Do you want to share some of those with us uh, briefly? Oh, well, it, 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 they were, like I said earlier, it was rampant in the early church. One of the big ones that uh, they had to deal with was called uh, dos, uh, docetism, uh, which is one that they had to get off, uh, deal with right off the bat, where they would say, again, spirit was a big part of the ancient world uh, and flesh and matter under Platonism or, or was evil always. And so it became a problem to say that God became flesh. So how do we deal with this? Well, uh, docetism would say that he only appeared to be flesh. He wasn't truly flesh and blood. Um, and again, this confession is uh, just cutting it off at the head. No, he really was man, fully, 100% completely man. Uh, think of uh, Nestorianism. Nestorianism, uh, what, what was it? Scott Clark used to talk about it as uh, two pigs in a burlap bag, uh, that they were just these two, um, that, that was, and I, I, it was uh, basically that the two natures are intermixed, they're blended together. Uh, and he says, no, these are two natures. He's fully God and fully man uh, and, and complete in both of these ways. Um, they're held together. They're not mixed or blended in any way, but rather it is separate and distinct. So again, just in the language the confession is using and it's cribbing from or stealing from uh, the Apostles' Creed, Athanasius' Creed, Nicene Creed, uh, all of these ancient creeds, because those were the creeds that were helped to defend against the doctrines of uh, Arianism, uh, which said that Christ was uh, adopting, um, you know, a, a excuse me, yeah, that Christ was uh, uh, adopted uh, as the son of God, uh, that he was just born as a man and then he somehow became God. No, but rather uh, we would affirm what John 1, 1 says, that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Um, again, it just, I, I think the confessions are really, what they're doing is they're they're building, we, we are articulating at, even as we study this, we're building on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us. And that's all the confessions or the reformers were doing as well. They're saying there's no need to rewrite uh, the, the book of doctrine uh, that has been passed down from to us for generations past. Um, and they're doing so by uh, taking a firm stance against the heresies that have crept into the church, that have been part of the church or that the church has faced uh, for its entire existence. I don't really have any more heresies to deal with. There, there are That's enough. Yeah. There's six <laughs> we don't or need seven, that. You know, in such a short span is quite a significant amount, I think. Yeah. We could, we could spend a whole show on these. I mean, there's the monophysitism as well, right? Uh, that there's one nature, but this is affirming there's one person, Christ, who has two natures. And we need that because 
We need him to be like us so he can stand in our place, a human being. We need him to be God so that he can fully bear the wrath and curse of God in our place and satisfy God's justice. And so that's why this is so practical and we can be so thankful for Christ, our mediator. Uh, thank you, uh, both uh, Shane, Jonathan, for joining me in this discussion. Thank you, listener. Uh, share this with your friends and uh, we hope you'll join us next time as we continue to go through uh, what we think is a good confession, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith.